Well, the question I hate the most is, what do you do? Because I do so many different things, and it's a bit of a, a blessing and a curse. This is Ethel Williams. He's a whistleblower for the global management consultancy firm Bain & Company. But as he says, also so much more. I'm an award-winning poet. I, you know, I've written seven children's picture books. I've run three different NGOs. I've started so many businesses. I've got five master's degrees. You know, so I've just, typically people have, you know, one sort of main, main focus and then little hobbies on the side. I've managed to kind of excel at, you know, four or five things simultaneously. So people may know Ethel as a man who worked for Bain on and off since the mid-1990s and who finally blew the whistle on their involvement in South Africa's state capture. And they will be surprised if they meet him in another context. I'd meet people who I've known for 15 years, but they've only known me as a poet. And so when I say to them, I'm, or they read in the paper that I'm testifying before the Zonda Commission, um, they're already perplexed because what has a poet got to say about state capture? Welcome to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. We are going to get back to Ethel's story as a whistleblower in a moment. First, you should know that this podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and is produced by volume. Throughout the series, we are going to explore what it takes to become a whistleblower and the incredible impact that these brave individuals can have. In this episode, we are looking at the topic of evidence. We return to Ethel, who explains how he became involved with Bain in the first place. I started out in engineering. I, you know, I did engineering at WITS and ended up meeting Bain in the U.S. when I went and did an MBA at the MIT Sloan School of Management. So I was at MIT and I was one of three students that Bain recruited to go and spend 10 weeks with them between my first and second year. He was 25 years old and was selected to work for Bain on a full-time basis after he graduated. The salary I earned at Bain was more than 10 times what I earned before, you know, my previous job. It's this order of magnitude. And so you go from you know, rags to riches in some senses. But it's an amazing place to work at. It's really a, a work hard, sort of play hard type environment. You typically work six days a week, um, 65 hours a week is not uncommon. Um, you know, leaving the office before 8 p.m. is sort of frowned upon. Uh, so it's a very intense work environment. Ethel excelled at Bain. Actually, as I moved through the ranks, I left and joined Bain a number of times. So I worked for two years, then left, went to did something else, rejoined them. And I did this actually three or four times and it became one of those jokes amongst myself and my peers that, you know, Ethel sort of keeps leaving and coming back. It showed this amazing relationship I had with Bain. I mean, I was immensely proud to work at Bain. There was no doubt about it. On my CV, you know, I've got Harvard on my CV. I've got Oxford on my CV. I've got MIT on my CV. But for me, having Bain on my CV was what I was proud of because it was such, such a prestigious organization, did such amazing work. And as a Bain consultant, I got to work with um, and directly with senior executives of some of the major multinationals around the world. Um, so the exposure to real business, to real decision-making was just incredible. Up until this point, 
Ethel had only worked for Bain outside of South Africa. And then in 2009, the company decided to return to South Africa after having left in 2002. They asked Ethel to rejoin and help build Bain in South Africa, his birth country. But he did not know then that the company that he would have a long relationship with would have to be exposed for wrongdoing and that he would be the person to do it. You know, for me to put the word Bain and Zuma and corruption in the same sentence, even today makes me shudder because it's just not, it shouldn't be the same sentence. The challenge I then had in, 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 in speaking up, um, the self-doubt I had because I thought, but this is Bain. These are my friends. These are the, my mentors. These are the people I've looked up to for so many years and worked so closely for so many years. So, yeah, so that, that becomes a big issue. I think, you know, also just added to that, this relationship was so, so, um, you know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, right? I mean, I, I was a, I was a Bainy. You know, we call ourselves, call themselves Bainies. Um, you know, I was in Bain's um, um, advertisements. You know, I was the picture boy for, for online, um, on-campus recruiting. I was in their recruiting brochures. I was on their website um, over many years. Um, even the early days of the internet, right, I was the one on, on Bain's um, website because I was that passionate about the organization and could speak about it so uh, compellingly and so sincerely that uh, they used me in all of, a lot of their marketing. So this is no ordinary job or no ordinary relationship with an employer. It's, a, it's an intimate um, relationship. You know, the, the people who are there now, the leaders of the organization, we started together as juniors 25 years ago. So I know all of them very well. So the whistleblowing part of the story starts in 2018. Ethel had been working elsewhere. And then in 2018, Bain had asked him to return to the company. I'd maintained a relationship with Bain over the years, as I always had, which meant they called me in every now and then to give talks, to give training, to do some mentoring. So I'd always maintained my relationship with Bain. But in 2018, the um, President um, Ramaphosa launched a commission into what was happening at the South African Revenue Service, SARS. There were allegations of, of, of corruption um, at SARS. SARS as an institution, which historically had been regarded in South Africa as one of the strongest state institutions, and internationally as one of the strongest and best-run revenue collection agencies, um, had gone into such a state of disrepair that it was unable to collect the targeted um, revenues. So the president um, instituted the Nugent Commission run by retired Judge Robert Nugent. What had happened was Bain had been hired by the commissioner of SARS to do restructuring work. So Bain, along with the commissioner of SARS, Tom Moyani, restructured the entire SARS organization. So it went from this well-running, well-functioning organization to a dysfunctional organization thanks to this restructuring. Now, what had happened was the Nugent Commission was established. The Nugent Commission, chaired by retired Judge Robert Nugent, was an inquiry into SARS, the South African Revenue Service. They called Bain, because obviously Bain was um, implicated along the way. They called Bain to testify. And in that testimony, um, it became very evident that Bain was in, far more involved in what happened at SARS um, and in some ways, the untoward things that happened at SARS 
than had been previously um, um, revealed. So Bain then launched an internal investigation, sort of a brief internal investigation, found that actually the managing partner of the South African business had not told the full truth internally. They then hired an external um, law firm, Baker McKenzie, which is one of the world's largest law firms. So they, they hired Baker McKenzie to conduct this rigorous investigation into what happened at SARS. Because Bain, this is the story I was um, led to believe, because Bain were worried that the, 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 no one who'd believe the investigation report because it would be seen to be biased, they wanted to introduce some level of objectivity or some objective oversight of the investigation so that um, society would accept the findings of the Bain um, Baker McKenzie investigation. So they asked me to come in and to, to chair an oversight committee. So this oversight committee would have oversight of the Baker McKenzie investigation into what Bain had done at SARS. When Ethel returned, his colleagues were overjoyed. I got tons of emails and phone calls from friends saying, fantastic, you're back. You know, thanks for stepping in. Thanks for helping us. Right? I mean, people would be coming to South Africa, the Bain senior people, hugging me, saying, great to have you back again. It was that kind of relationship. Ethel brought with him his incredible reputation that he had built over the years, specializing in business ethics, corporate ethics, and regulatory compliance. When the Ethics Institute in South Africa has a conference, they invite me to come and speak. When Mervyn King and his, and his good um, governance academy has a conference, they invite me to speak. So I developed through study and through research and through practice an expertise around um, business ethics, around sort of social justice and um, corporate governance and compliance. So I think what Bain was, was banking on then was you know, here's Athol, he's, he's a public figure, um, he's, he's known for, for a lot of things in the country, he's got integrity, so we will bank on his integrity that he will do the right thing. They wanted someone who knows the business, because if you brought anyone else in to provide this role, they would spend you know weeks, months getting to know the, the consulting business. Um, so there was no doubt that I would have, you know, I could never claim I was completely unbiased. What I put in the line here was saying, I will 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 vouch for what I see. This is the perspective that Apple brought to his position. What Bain was expecting, I can only speculate, because it certainly does seem that the, their expectation was that on the margin, when there was going to be a conflict, I would err in, in Bain's favor, um, which was obviously a massive mistake that they made, because I made it crystal clear. I mean, I've got the email still, which I will discuss with the Zonda Commission, my first email to Bain in 2018 said, I've got a hierarchy of interests. It's South Africa first, Athol second, Bain third. And what I meant by that was, when there's going to be a conflict of what I see, I'm going to err in favor of, of, of my country because I think we're dealing with issues of national importance. So if it's you know, Bain versus South Africa, I'm going South Africa. If it's Bain versus Athol, if I'm going to suffer some personal cost or loss because of a particular view, I wanted them to know up front that I was going to be biased towards my, myself. And then, um, and then Bain. So my goal wasn't to go and, and, and um, damage Bain or, or prosecute Bain. My goal was to be objective. But when, when there were going to be conflicts, I wanted to be clear with them how I was going to, um, where I was going to fall in terms of those conflicts. Ethel admits that he went into this whole situation with a lot of optimism. I certainly believed Bain was going to break with that tradition 
of companies withholding relevant information. Um, all the discussions I had, I mean, and I had discussions with, with the Bain leaders at, you know, at, the, at the highest level um, in the US, and they said, the goal here is to do the right thing. We want this information to get out, and we will, we will deal with the consequences, and we'll make sure that there's, there's amends we made afterwards, right? So for me, this was perfect. This was, so Ethel, the loyal Bain man, I felt fantastic that I was helping my organization deal with something they had done wrong, but we're not going to make it right. Ethel, the ethics guy, felt really good as well because I was actually bringing to bear all of my ethics knowledge to do some unprecedented work with a corporation um, to do this to do this um, the right way. And and by the way, as an academic, this is also amazing for me, right? Because most academics just have their theories and ideas; they never ever see it come to fruition. And here was what I believed really unprecedented work being done about a company saying we will do the right thing. Um, and, and I then developed this rigorous remedy plan um, built literally off ideas of reparations that you see um, after national atrocities. Um, and the discussions I had with Bain was saying, here's a chance for you to show global leadership on how a company goes about doing the right thing and what we mean by the right thing. And again, they gave me all the assurances that that was their intention. But Ethel's excitement was short-lived. During playing the independent oversight role, then already I started um, having concerns. Um, at the end of my contract, which ended in December 2018, I wrote a report um, which went to the Nugent Commission. And this report, in this report, I said, I've got major concerns about Bain not revealing everything that, everything they know. Um, but it was, it was, you know, if you asked me at that point, Ethel, what do you really think happened here? I painted two extremes. I, I sort of, and I called it a small scheme and a big scheme. The small scheme was Bain had been involved at SARS. Um, something went very wrong and, uh, Bain got caught up in, you know, in a really sort of, you know, messy thing. They were, they were inadvertent. They were unwitting participants in something very wrong. That was the small scheme. The big scheme was Bain was doing this consciously. They were involved at SARS. And in fact, they were involved well beyond SARS. They were fully part of some of the thinking and planning around state capture. And so given all of my history of, of being a Bain man and based on what I'd seen, I, I was not absolutely not convinced that Bain were the big scheme people, that I did not believe that they um, were involved in, in grand state capture. I'd seen nothing that convinced me of that. And so I, you know, I sort of said, well, it's, it's the small scheme. They were unwitting participants, even though there were some signs it wasn't as unwitting. So I expressed in this report discomfort about things, but there wasn't a massive flag waving about, you know, here's something very wrong. This concern emerged when his contract was coming to a conclusion and when he was a part-time employee of Bain during May of 2019. Now, by that time, all the noise had settled down, the, the Nugent Commission was over, um, and largely things were getting back to normal. Bain said to me, Ethel, you've, you've got some fantastic ideas around this remedy plan. 
Or we need someone to drive its implementation, and we can think of no one else better to do that. You've designed it. You know our business. You're an expert at this stuff. Come in and do it. And again, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. So I had been a full-time academic at UCT, at the business school. So I, I reduced my job at UCT. So I was a part-time lecturer at UCT, and I'd be a part-time consultant with Bain. Um, in fact, I was a senior partner at Bain and a senior lecturer at UCT. So my role at Bain was to develop, sort of fully develop this remedy plan and drive its implementation. You know, if you ask me what, what I think happened along the way, I've got two views. Right? The one view is they were playing me from the very beginning. You know, there was a massive cover-up planned and they were just playing me. And that's a very plausible story, right? The, the alternative view is they actually didn't realize things were as bad as it turned out to be. And so they engaged me sincerely and then they discovered actually they were involved in far more mess than they initially thought. And that's when things went very wrong. And, and I honestly still don't know which, which one it is, but I do know that they were involved in far more than just SARS. So this isn't a SARS discussion. When you're talking about Bain, you're talking about the heart of state capture. These are guys who we know met with Jacob Zuma 12, at least 12 times behind closed doors after hours. Now, as a management consulting firm who typically works with CEOs and business people, why would you be meeting with the president of any country behind closed doors after hours? Then to do it 12 times, then to do it with the president who's so embroiled in corruption, you've got to ask some serious questions. The irony was that Ethel had been brought in by Bain specifically to ask these very questions. And these are some of the questions I began asking when I was now on the inside as an employee. Once I got inside, I said, guys, for me to develop and implement a remedy plan, I need to fully understand what Bain was involved in, right? You know, in, in the absence of knowing exactly what Bain was involved in, it would be like a doctor um, prescribing medicines without knowing what the sickness is. This is when things worsened. And that's when they began refusing to let me see everything they knew. And when I say everything, I mean they had conducted this detailed investigation into SARS and those findings they refused to show me. Never mind the investigations that had been conducted into all the other government institutions and state-owned enterprises where Bain had worked. So like Telcom, like SASL, like Development Bank of South Africa, like the IDC, like the PIC. Bain had worked across all of those institutions and they'd conducted investigations into their work in all those institutions. And some of the evidence that I've seen um, shows that things were untoward with their work in those institutions. So as a senior partner in the business, tasked with driving the remedy, it only made sense to me that at least I saw everything that that was known. And the the legal team, um, which was based in the US and, and in Europe, refused to let me see that. Ethel became very uncomfortable. You know, there's one email that I've got where the head of legal globally um, says um, they can't let me see or let anyone see these investigation findings, because if it ever got out, it could be used against Bain in court. Now, for me, that just says they have information that is so worth withholding because it shows wrongdoing. So on this basis, Ethel couldn't stay at Bain any longer. The moment they refused to let me see what damage had been done, um, it made no sense for me to be there. He says the decision to resign or quit 
was an impulsive one, but the repercussions were hard to adapt to. I got to the point where, where if I stayed any longer, I was convinced I would be complicit in, in a cover-up. And so I made the decision to leave, you know, immediately after a, a meeting. So literally on the 27th of August, I had a meeting with a bunch of senior people where I pushed hard and pushed hard until they said, absolutely not, we will not show you this information. The very next morning, I resigned. Um, and then what Bain then did, because Bain had been using me as, again, their, 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 their picture boy, they'd been sort of you know, telling everyone in the media, all of their clients, that um, they've got this great guy, Athol. You know, if Athol will join us, we can't be that bad. And Athol's coming in to kind of do all these good things in our business. So they've been parading me around as sort of you know, the symbol of their, how contrite they were and how they were committed to making things right. Bain had basically been leveraging Apple's long-standing reputation as an ethics expert for their own benefit. When I quit, you can just imagine, right, this entire facade then collapses. And so for three months after my life, for two months after I'd quit, they refused to announce my resignation um, to clients, to the market, even internally, not even to staff, would they announce that I'd resigned. And so... I then chose an opportunity. I, I was speaking at a conference in Santon City um, at the CFO conference. There were 5,000 finance professionals at this conference, and I was speaking about um, ethical behavior in business. And, you know, I, I'd sort of been thinking maybe that's the platform for me to make this public, and I, and I wasn't sure. But just, again, spur of the moment, I was saying something in that conference and thought just this is the moment. And so then publicly, with the media in attendance, I'd said, um, and by the way, I've actually resigned from Bain. Um, so it wasn't a public resignation. I'd already resigned, but I just made it very public. And I think for Bain, that then um, you know, threw their plans into, into disarray. You know, within hours, I think within two hours, they had wiped clean my cell phone and my laptop, um, done all remotely from the US, and I was just cut off immediately. Um, all for telling you know publicly something that I'd actually you know resigned um, two months earlier. You know when you sort of stop and you think I'm being interviewed by the media or I read the articles and they're saying you know Bain corruption, Bain state capture, and I'm thinking this can't be. Surely I've got this wrong, right? And I mean the amount of self doubt that began to creep in was just immense. Of me saying I, I, I must I must have this wrong. And I'd have my Bain colleagues from all over the world calling me, right? And you know, Athol, we know each other for 20 years. How can you possibly say something like this? And so I kept being badgered by them saying, you know, issue a retraction. This can't be the case. And I would, I kept just taking the facts of these, this is the information I asked for, and I kept being denied it. And what became clear to me was that within Bain, there was a small little group that was really running the whole cover-up, um, and no one else really knew what was going on. So to my other colleagues who weren't involved in the cover-up, I really did look like the madman. And, and that's then how Bain began portraying me internally and externally. Um, they portrayed me as this guy who had some beef with Bain. I was some disgruntled person. And I, I weaseled my way into the organization. I maneuvered and manipulated things to get re-employed re with the goal of causing destruction at Bain. And, and this is sad for me, right? So this is the sadness for me that I've got all my old friends now turning on me because they're saying, you came in here to destroy this firm, so you are the enemy. At this point, Ethel needed expert assistance. I sort of contacted a number of NGOs because literally I didn't know what to do. And at that point, so we're talking about sort of October, November 2019. At that point, 
remember, I did. I was never saying Bain had been involved in state capture. All I was saying was, I ask the following questions, and these are the answers I get. I don't like these answers as a professional, as someone of integrity, as someone, an ethical person. And, and so my suspicions have been growing, and that's why I resigned. Bain can solve all of my concerns by actually revealing that information. And so I then went to the Zonda Commission and said, look, I don't know if this stuff is relevant to you, but I, I um, have been involved with Bain. I've got tons of information on my, on my computer. I've got emails. I've got documents that I gathered legally while I was conducting my oversight role. I actually don't know exactly what's there, but um, there might be something there. Uh, and so what the Zonda Commission then said was, okay, send us everything you've got. And so that's when I spent um, you know, a number of weeks, months, just you know, downloading documents and emails, um, putting into some sort of order, and then sending it across to the Zonda Commission. Th this took me into early 2020. The Zonda Commission then asked me, uh, understandably, they said, look, you've, you've got all this information you've given us. It's hard for us to make sense of it. Um, could you basically just then you know, draft an affidavit that then makes sense of all of this? And, and that's when I then spent probably six months um, going through, so reading every email, every document that I had, and it's you know, it over 500 documents, and then putting together this, this, this narrative. Now, to me, it was shocking, that, that experience, because now for the first time, I began to link things together. So, and, and this is a big question Bain have been, you know, Bain have been sort of pressing on, saying, why is Apple only now talking about state capture? In 2018, he just kind of said things didn't look right. Now he's talking about state capture. And I think the insinuation is, you know, I'm playing to some sort of agenda. This is because in 2018, Ethel's role was to provide oversight only in relation to matters involving SARS. So when there was non-SARS-related stuff, largely I didn't take notice of it. And, and neither did the Nugent Commission take notice of it because it was focused on SARS. What I did in 2020 was to review all the information I had even the information beyond SARS. And that becomes actually very relevant to understanding Bain's involvement in state capture, because that's when you see the web effect. That's when you see Bain meeting with Zuma at least 12 times after hours behind closed doors. That's when you see Bain meeting with other cabinet ministers um, and CEOs of, company, of, 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 of companies. That's when you see Bain's plans around centralizing um, procurement for government or restructuring major industries like they had done at SARS. So it's only when I sat down did I see this picture emerge, which showed a deliberate plan or scheme where SARS was just one of the examples of what was being planned. And, and that's when I said, actually, I revised my position. I think Bain was far more involved in said capture than they're admitting and that I had initially suspected. And that is why they don't want to reveal or make full disclosure of what they know. Ethel finally made sense of all of the pieces, and this is when the complete picture became much clearer to him. It is astounding to read this Bain documents, where regardless of what the problem was, the answer was always restructure, always restructure the organization, always restructure the entire industry. And we know that's what they did at, um, that's what they did at SARS, right? It was through this restructuring process. Because what restructuring does, and, and, and just, just you know, common sense, it says you break all the institutional memory, you break how the organization works, and you reconfigure that. 
but also you can it gives you the opportunity to take out layers of of governance um right and so you could say, oh, are we reorganizing to improve the organization? But why did SARS need reorganization? It was a world-class organization. And well, look at all of those documents that Bain had produced and the discussions that had with Zuma. It was all about this, this idea of restructuring. Um, and, and it just makes sense. That, that was going to be the plan. It was going to be restructure everything so we can concentrate resources, concentrate decision-making. So Bain became this fantastic partner to the state capture planners because they could use this credible international prestigious firm um we could operate under this umbrella of them doing just benign restructuring but really what it was doing was sort of uh reconfiguring and repurposing the state institutions for the purposes of state capture the question one has to ask is with bain having so much to lose why would the company choose to do this They'd always pose this question, but Ethel, why would Bain be involved in state capture? It, it, you know, it, it was also presented as such a preposterous idea. And I, I think that is a complex question. You know, the, the, the head of Bain in South Africa at the time, Vittorio Massoni, um, had a huge ego. So if you imagine, and even for me as a consultant, as you know, a career consultant, if you say to me, Ethel, here's a country, you know, you're going to sit down with the president and the president of this country is going to listen to you whenever you show up with wonderful ideas, right? I'd go, this is Nirvana. This is the best kind of relationship I can possibly have. So massive ego wanted to be involved um, at the highest level. He had no expertise in South Africa. He had never been to South Africa before he was appointed into this role. Um, he had demonstrated over and over again very loose ethical principles so much so that a number of the senior partners, including myself, had complained to global leadership that we are worried about this guy's ethical behavior, yet he kept staying in that job. And, but more than anything else, he was going to sign up you know, decades of, of revenues from these projects. Because if you are going around restructuring every one of our government institutions, that's going to give Bain business for the next 30 years. And so... Yes, he got in, he got himself involved, whether initially um, aware of state capture or not. Um, I, I don't know, but surely when you're that involved, that close to what was going on, you know, all the people he was meeting with, all the people we see at the at the Zondo Commission, Masoni was right there in the middle of of Zuma's camp, uh, meeting with him socially, meeting with him at his home, um, and so we can't say that Bain were not involved in state capture because they were right there in terms of the planning, and then. Even if along the way they only discovered that, you know, shit, this is actually worse than we thought, or what are we involved in here? They never pulled out. They never walked away because of the financial incentives for them. The resilience of many whistleblowers in Africa is remarkable. Ethel, like many other whistleblowers, had both positive and negative experiences. You know, there, there are so many different experiences whistleblowers have. The one that really impacted me a lot was the sense of abandonment. I felt alone. Um, I felt that my my um, business network had dissolved because, firstly, all my Bain contacts dissolved because they weren't talking to me. A lot of my business contacts weren't talking to me because I was, you know, this was not the the, the done thing of blowing the whistle on a corporation and a respected one like Bain. Um, even UCT, so remember, I was a part-time senior lecturer at UCT teaching business ethics, right? Um, even UCT um, um, abandoned me. 
um, because they had said, oh, this, you know, all the Zonda stuff is, is too much of a distraction. Um, and they suggested I resign. And, and so I think that's another example of an institution just abandoning whistleblowers because of the stance I'd taken. And so for PLAF to come along as a, as a friendly organization that says, we are here standing by you, how can we help? It was literally the first time I'd heard those words. Um, and, you know, even though it's been mainly legal for now, it's at least a group I know I can call on who will, will, will take my call and would offer some guidance and, and some support. I got to know about Plath on social media through Twitter. And um, I think on Twitter, I had commented on a post saying, could we speak? And, and that was after, after a year, like I was saying, of struggling to get any help. I had no legal help, um, you know, no support from any NGO or social justice organization. Um, I had no no legal representations. I wrote my 700-page affidavit on my own, just a man in a laptop sitting down writing this thing. Through PLAF, I've got legal representation. So PLAF have appointed attorney, and, and that attorney is you know, appointed an advocate. So as of November of last year, I've now I've got this legal representation through PLAF. Ethel, for the last 10 years, has had this goal to support the creation of an ethical society. I'd grown up during apartheid. You know, I, I went to government schools. I grew up in the Cape Flats in a township. And um, and so for me to have achieved the, the, the business success, the financial success, and the education I, I, I achieved, um, you know, was counted to what anyone would expect. Um, and in many ways, you could you wouldn't blame me then for you know enjoying the fruits of the fruits of that um, of that success um, and I did you know I had a mansion in Santon for a while I had you know six different cars um, which included a Lamborghini and a Rolls Royce and you know lived lived life grand because I you know I was his Bain partner I'd started my own business I'd um, done these amazing things but you know I, I, I guess. I got to a point where you look around in South Africa, and we all know this, you know, there's this dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots. And it sort of, in me, said, I can either go and sort of really enjoy this, this, this luxury, or I can use it as a way to bring about some social change in the country. And um, that had always been uh, important to me, the idea of um, bringing about social change. And so, but... It was an awakening that said, but now I've got the resources to do it. I've got the reputation, I've got the network, I've got some money so I can do things. And so that was for me, I sort of set on a path of saying, what can I do? Um, you know, if, if I wanted to just live a comfortable life, I could go live anywhere in the world. You know, why, why be here in South Africa? And so I sort of set out to say, I'm going to do something meaningful. And, and so I, for me, this goal of working towards an ethical society sort of took two two broad levels. The one was sort of bottom up, which was um, for me, you know, education was obviously important to me because education was what opened the doors for me and really set me free. So I took a lot of the money, I sold the car, sold a big house, and then created um, a nonprofit organization called Read to Rise um, with my wife. And the plan was to then work in communities where children um, don't have access to books. Um, and so we distribute brand new books to children. We've done this for over 100,000 children to date. But importantly about these books was something inspirational. So for me, how do we change the ethics of society? How do we change the makeup, the culture of society? It's with our children. It's kind of what we feed them. 
And so I created this whole set of programs around working with schools, um, primary schools, um, and we'll keep doing that, right? Like I said, we've worked with 100,000 children already. There are parts of the country like Soweto, um, the Cape Flats, where everyone knows the character Oki, which is the little acorn and oak tree, because we've just been doing it over and over again for the last eight years. So the, my, my bottom-up investment was around children and being inspired to be great, right? And I could tell my story. I could say, look, yeah, I'm Athol. I grew up, you know, went to the same schools you're going to, and look what I've done. And then my top-down approach was around working with leaders and trying to influence policy. So I wanted to teach at a business school because I wanted to teach um, future business leaders about ethical decision-making. And that's what my teaching and my research was at UCT. Um, I, you know, since UCT has sort of, you know, bumped me out of the, the, the organization, I've now started what I've called the Institute of Social and Corporate Ethics, which is just doing exactly what I've just described, right? It's, it's doing research around what we mean by an ethical society. Ethel is not allowing his whistleblowing experience to come in the way of this vision. In fact, it may very well act as a platform for all of his ideas. So for me, the premise is you build a strong economy by building a strong society. Um, you know, you build a strong society by building an ethical society. Because the moment we trust each other, the moment we are truthful to each other, that's when we cooperate far better, not only for the benefit of just social order, but then for economic benefit. And that turns economics on its head because most economics starts with, well, you know, let's change the interest rates. Let's, you know, let's adjust where government spending goes and that'll drive the economy. You have been listening to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. This podcast series is brought to you by PLA, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and it's produced by volume. For more information, please visit plaf.org. Catch up on all of the episodes of The Witness wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Volume.